All right, so we're going to jump in. I'm actually starting a new series called uh, Covenant and Kingdom. This is something we've talked about. We talked a little bit about it, kind of got into it in, in a big way about four years ago. Some of you guys might remember. But as I was, I was kind of praying about where we're headed next and what the Lord's doing, obviously with the big challenges that we had in the last year or so, uh, as, as we were praying for it this morning, the, the, this sense of unrest and all the things that are happening, um, it's, it's predictable, actually. Um, you know, if you, if you didn't see it coming, you, you weren't paying attention. <laughs> um, a lot of people were not paying attention. So um, part of the reason why is because we, we live in a, in a world, we talk about the, the world that has fallen. We live in a fallen and a broken world. And people have, have uh, separated themselves from any moral um, anchors, for lack of a better term. So we, we're doing, as the judges says, we're often doing what's right in our own eyes. And, uh, and it sounds really good, you know, that, hey, as long as it's not hurting anybody else, I mean, what's the big deal? That sounds really good, except for it is hurting somebody else. That's part of the problem. It just doesn't, it just doesn't show up immediately. So worldviews matter. What you believe matters. If you, if you start into something, if you know this as a builder, if you build a foundation and you have a really bad plan or the foundation is off, it doesn't matter how, how nice the building is by the 23rd floor. At some point, if the foundations are off, the, the building's going to fall down. What, and, and what usually happens is there's a shaking, like an earthquake, right? We've talked about this. And whatever can be shaken, the Bible talks about, will be shaken. And that's what we're experiencing right now. So covenant and kingdom is, is kind of, I mean, you're like, how does that work out? How does that work into what, you know, what we're called to do, what the church is supposed to be doing? How do we answer some of the challenges that are happening in our culture right now? And I'm really glad you asked. And so we're going to take the next several weeks, and we're going to talk about what that looks like. So there's a, a guy I like. He's a theologian, um, was a theologian. His name was Francis Schaeffer. Some of you guys might have remembered him. He started a, a movement in uh, Switzerland called Labrie. And he, he kind of set up this thing where you could come and you can, back, back then it was cassette tapes. You could come and you could just, if you were curious about God or if you had any thoughts about, you know, uh, worldviews that were starting to lean into that kind of thing, um, you could go to Labrie, you could stay. It was kind of like a hippie thing, a little bit. You could go there, you could stay. Um, everybody kind of worked together to cook and clean and do all the things that you do in this area. Eventually, they had several different buildings. They had tons of, of, uh, of uh, houses, dorm-type houses. And so there were just tons and tons of people who would come through on a yearly basis. And then what Francis Schaefer would do is he would, in the evenings, he would just talk. He would share. He would share on whatever subject was either in his own heart or some questions that had been asked, and he would try to answer some of the challenges that people were having as they were coming into faith. And so it was really good. He, he, had, this, uh, he had this book in, published in 1976 called um, uh, How Shall We Then Live? And so th- it was this, and it also turned into like a 10-part series. You can, you can actually find it on YouTube. It's really good. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of weird because it's the 70s. <laughs> it was really good quality in the 70s, but it was the 70s, so lower your expectations if you go watch it. But it was really good, and he talked about, <clears throat> he, he kind of talked through the culture and how, starting from the Roman culture, how things begin to degrade. And the, his whole treatise about this was when, when a people, an organiza- not an organization, but when a people or a community or um, you know, a society decides to build a society, they have to build it on something. The problem is so often they would build it, and they would build it on something that would eventually fall down. And so you saw every major you know, every major uh, society, <clears throat> the Greeks, the Romans, uh, you know, I mean, just go down the list. Every single nation, or sorry, every single great movement, society, it, it, it was crushed under its own weight. What would happen is it would get so unwieldy because they were trying to govern people, right, govern society, human beings, in a way that was never going to work. 
And the reason why is they were trying to govern themselves outside of the one who had created them. And this was kind of Francis Schaeffer's treatise. He was like, okay, you cannot govern a people made by God without God, right? Like it just is not going to work. And so, so it, was really, it was really helpful for me when I was going through and, and really trying to understand the faith. Um, Francis Schaeffer was really good <clears throat> because I tend to, I, I just want to think things deeply. I don't want to fall into traps is kind of the way I, I, I kind of think about it. And so he was really helpful because he would ask questions that I didn't have answers for, right? And so these questions would begin to build. And, and what I realized is that everybody, these questions should be being asked by everybody, but a lot of people didn't care. <laughs> and the reason they didn't care is because they were fine. Like, why would I care about philosophy and about a worldview and about any of those things when, you know, I'm just trying to make it through, I'm just trying to get by? And, and that works, again, in all these societies, it works until it doesn't, right? <laughs> and so, so again, and same thing in a family, same thing in marriage. I remember talking to someone about the marriage, and they're like, we, we build our marriage on a 50-50 basis. And I was like, oh, that's so bad. Oh, that is, that is no wonder you're talking to me right now, right? So, so the, the reason why is you have to build your marriage on 100% and 100%, right? You give everything, they give everything, and in the midst of that, God, you know, if you do it without God, even that's going to fail, but if you do it with one, you can't do that without God, but if God is in the midst, then he creates, he, he takes up all the slack, as it were, right? And so if you do God's thing God's way, you get God's results. You've heard me say that a million things. And so my, my introduction is kind of this. As we go into this, there is a way, the Bible talks about, a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. And so that works whether it's an individual, whether it's a church, or sorry, a family, a church, a community, an organization, you know, uh, uh, where you work, all the way up to a full-blown society, to a full-blown culture. So um, America is, is a nation, um, but Western culture involves America, Europe, and several other places, right? So even as big as it can get, at some point, if it's not built on the proper foundations, it's going to fall down. And Jesus talked about that. He said, hey, when the winds come, right? <laughs> not if the winds come. Not if the rain comes, because they're coming. And the reason why is we live in a fallen and a broken world, and that means there are consequences that are on top of consequences over thousands of years, right, that have developed into certain things that have happened that we are pushing back and praying into all the time. And that's part of the role that we play, and I'm going to get into that in a second. So let me start with Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene. Um, you know, in the, in the second part of the Bible, for lack of a better term, the New Covenant, right? And so there's this really interesting thing in Hebrews that talks about Jesus. It's very, very unique, and it spends like several chapters, 10, 12 chapters, on the uniqueness of Jesus, right? And so it says, you know, in past times, God spoke through prophets and through angels and through all these different ways, but in these last days, he's spoken by his son. And it goes on, it says, it says that everything, everything you want to know about God is in his son. Everything. You, there's nothing outside of God that you can know that, that isn't found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when you know that, he becomes a pretty significant person in your life, right? And so what, often what we try to do, and this is kind of the picture, is we try to live our life disconnected from the only one who actually is the source of that life, right? So when you disconnect from the source, maybe you can live a little while. You know, the, the, the adage is that you can live... Um, you can live three minutes without, what is it, three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, three weeks without food, and uh, I think is it three something, there's another three involved, without social connection. <laughs> we forget that one, right? But we've all been experiencing that, right? Some of the challenges we're having, the unrest that we have right now, we were praying into earlier, 
I mean, does that just kind of happen? Was that kind of, oh, you know, there was a big movement, and everybody's like, oh, I think I'll go do this, right? It really didn't. That's not how it works. Any more than a marriage falls apart, you know, on a, on a Tuesday because the guy got up that morning and said, I think I'm going to go have an affair at lunch. Like, is that really how that works? And the answer is, of course not. It leads up to something, right? And so Jesus comes along. Um, the Bible says that in him is the fullness of God. Everything you need to know about it is, is, is in God is him. There's a couple things about Jesus that you notice in the, the, the Gospels and in, in the, uh, the epistles, and that's this, that he had a deep, deep knowledge of the Scriptures. Like, even at 12 years old, he's found in the temples and he's teaching the teachers at 12, right? So he had a deep knowledge of Scriptures. And secondly... Um, well, let me just get into that a bit. His, his knowledge was about the character of God, the nature of God, and the ways of God, right? So those are the things that he knew about God. Because he had a deep knowledge of Scripture, the revealed picture of God, he understood who God was and how he worked, right? From that came something. It came a sense of authority, and this is what they said about Jesus when he would teach. They said, you teach differently than everybody else. And well, what was the difference? Was he, was he just know the Bible more? Well, yeah, probably, but he, they said he taught with authority. Like, what you say, actually, I, I know it's true. I feel that. I might not like it, but I do know that it's true. And so, how does that compare to us? So, obviously, with the picture of us, is uh, we come along, kind of the second part of this. Jesus has established what this is supposed to look like. Um, the Old Covenant has established what perfect looks like. Jesus comes, and he is the perfect, Right? Then we often compare ourselves to the old covenant. We try to do our best or whatever you want to call it. But very quickly, that, that begins to fall through. And we begin to recognize that we're, we can't make it, right? We can't do it. Then we see Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Like now he's, the, he's a human perfection. Not just a bunch of laws, but he's human perfection. And we can't do that either, right? We can't, you know, I'm trying to be like Jesus. The harder you try to be like Jesus, the less probably you're going to look like Jesus, right? Why? Because you can't be, you can't be Jesus without Jesus. <laughs> That's so deep and, and profound and yet so simple all at the same time, right? So you can't, be, you can't be who God made you to be without being who God made you to be. It's just they're, they're, they cancel each other out if you're not careful. So becoming a believer, there's this restoration, this, re, this restoring of our life to God. In other words, we were disconnected because of sin and then we get reconnected through Christ, right? We believe on the sacrifice that he, that he came and gave. He was the perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish. And he lays his life down and gives us his perfection in exchange for our sinfulness and brokenness. So now we reconnect to the source. In him was life, the Bible said. Not just he had life or you'll have life. In him is life. There is no life any other way. So if you don't know Christ, maybe you're living, but you don't have life. Does that make sense? So again, you know, it's like, you, I, I don't know if you guys did this, but my, grand, my grandmother cooked chicken a lot. And she would, she would make her own chicken, if you know what I'm talking about. She, <laughs> I remember the first time that happened, she's like, she's just talking to me like everything's normal. Next thing I know, she's swinging a chicken around like this, and you know, and, and <laughs> it, it dies, obviously, and she throws it on the ground, and anybody know what happened next? My expectation was the trauma was over. Oh, no, no, the trauma was just beginning, right? It's like an eight-year-old kid. I'm like, why is that chicken running around with his head all laying sideways? It's like, that can't possibly be right, right? So even though it had been disconnected from the brain, right, the source, whatever you want to call it, and the brain had stopped the heart from, from pumping, it still, for the next minute or two, that thing danced around like a chicken with its, yeah. <laughs> so the connection to the source matters, right? So um, 
as we're growing, as we're staying connected with the source, there's an ongoing thing of what is God saying? So it's in him is life, and the life was the light of men, right? So we're connected to God, and as we're connected with God, there's this beautiful picture of we're, we're listening, we're hearing God's voice, and we're able to do what he says. We're hearing God's voice because we've been reconnected. We're able to do what God says because he's given us now the authority that comes with the life he's given us, right? So we, we recognize there's an established aspect of it, a scripture. What did God say? What have I done about it, right? So what, did, what was Jesus all about? What was salvation all about? I can go after that. I can follow after Jesus. I can come to know Christ. I can get life inside of me and I can begin. But so often what happens is after we begin we somehow go back into old ways or old ways of thinking. And some of that is literally going back into the law, legalism, and those kind of things. We're going to talk about that as we kind of go into the series a little bit. But the whole idea behind this is if you ever disconnect from the source, you'll keep going for a long time. But eventually, if you're disconnected from the source, whatever the source was providing is no longer yours. One of two things is going to happen. You're going to stop, right? Or you're going to keep going as if you had a source. And that's where religion comes in, right? So you keep going, you're connected to God, but the Bible says, you know, Jesus talks about, I never knew you, right? You say you're doing all these things, I never knew you. I don't know you, right? So how are you, how are you doing these things if you're disconnected from the source? So the two major screen, the themes in Scripture come from this kind of this perspective. One is, is covenant. We're going to talk about covenant today. And the second is kingdom. And so all that is, it's a simple thing. A, a cov- covenant is about relationship and your connection to the life of God, right? Your relationship to God, God's relationship to you. And then kingdom is about what that means, right? What are your responsibilities because now you've been connected to the life of God? What is required of you is the wrong way to put it, right? Because it, it, it has this, this sense of going back under the law, and it's always about obligation. We're going to get into that and why that's different in the new covenant. But the point is, is there's this connection between covenant and kingdom that interact constantly throughout the Scripture. And what tends to happen is most people have a tendency to lean into one aspect of, 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 God's, of the relationship with God or the other. So we tend to lean into one theme or the other. So if I'm a big relational person, I love the idea of covenant and connection to God, but I'm not big on actually doing things for him. So, so from the relationship, there's an expectation of representation. Does that make sense? So maybe I like the power of God and I like the kingdom. I like the authority because that's what kingdom is all about. It's the king's domain. It's the place where the king has authority and you're in him and so now you have authority. And so we're going to get into the kingdom as well. But the covenant aspect of it, maybe that's the thing that you struggle with. Maybe you didn't have a great you know, relationship with your father growing up. Maybe you were hurt by authority. Lots of different things. And so you're disconnected relationally, but you try to walk in the power of God without the relationship of God, and you get manipulation. That's what you get when you do that. Right? If you try to walk in, in uh, the covenant without the power, then maybe you're okay, but you never fulfill the purposes of God in your life. And so that's what we want to kind of talk about and, and go after this. So... Um, covenant is an interesting thing we don't see much of that nowadays the closest thing we can get to that in our world is a marriage contract they even change the wording right and it's not the same and I'm not going to get too deep in this because I've talked about it before but but covenant the, the aspect of covenant we need to understand is a committed relationship between two people and so the best picture of that is in um is in uh, Genesis, I think it's Genesis 15. We're going to talk about that in just a second with Abraham. But before I get into that, just kind of the picture of Genesis chapter 1, you see God um, creates people in his image, right? So Adam and Eve 
are, are created to live in relationship with him, that's covenant. Then they're given a mandate, even in the garden, to rule, right? To take the authority that God's given them and to, and to, to take their domain, right? This is yours, rule over it. That's what God t- told them to do, to rule over God's creation on his behalf. They're not independent of God trying to rule without God. It's helpful to understand that. <clears throat> so Genesis, three, uh, Genesis chapter 3, they violate the covenant relationship with God and they usurp the role and they seek to live independently from God. So they, they sin, they disobey God, they walk away from the relationship, and by doing that, walking away from the relationship, they forfeit their right to rule on his behalf. And yet they, step, they kept going. See, see where this begins to go wrong, right? And see why we're ending up in the places that we're ending up in as a society. Because we've, we've lost the connection with God, but we still want to rule with authority on his behalf, Right? And, and societies do that. So like with, with the Roman, this is the thing Francis Schaeffer talks about in the Roman culture. It begins with this beautiful idea, right, of a republic. It's an elite republic, but it's still a republic. And it begins with a very similar idea to what America is built on and some other Western nations, right? Where it began to go wrong is as the larger the, the society grew and the more people they tried to, to draw into it, the more problems they began to have because not everybody wanted to do what was right, Right? They, they started out with a good idea, and everybody said, yes, we think that's a good idea. The only problem is that they didn't have the authority or the power to live out the idea. And corruption began to occur by the second or third um, Caesar. Um, now they're worshiping him as a god. Right? He's, and, and the whole mindset behind the Senate was, if we give complete power to one man, then the chances are that we have a, at least one st- stable person who can speak authority and tell the truth. And, and so they did that. They gave all authority and gave power to him. You worship him as a god, right? So you see the picture, even going back, that painting the picture of we know what ought to be, we're just not willing to do it his way. So they create this whole society. He stands up as a god, and then he goes a little bit crazy with the power that he's been given, right? <laughs> so he goes and he begins to take advantage of the fact that he's got power for selfishness and his own kingdom. And so again, you see the same picture like in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, they are disconnected from the relationship with God, but still trying to rule with authority. And that's where it goes wrong. And that works in every aspect of life. You want to be a good husband? The only way you can do that, I'm just being honest with you, the only way you can really do that is to be connected to the one who invented husband. Right? It's the only way. And so if you get that off in whatever way, the authority that God has given you comes with a responsibility. There, there's the relationship that's connecting God to you. So the relationship with your wife, do you want to walk in authority and lead your home, as we talk about as Christians, you can't lead your home if you're not being led yourself. How do you lead your home if you're not in relationship with the one who leads you, right? You can't. And so, it, again, it begin, it'll work for a little while, but again, it begins to break down. So the whole rest of Scripture is God working out, after Genesis 3, the brokenness is God working out restoration of the people of God back into covenant relationship and back into kingdom rule. That's the whole rest of the Bible. So that's all of the patriarchs, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, all those guys. The New Testament, Jesus comes in and illustrates it now. And then he gives that same authority and relationship with God to you and I, the church. But even that went wrong, right? And now, so we have churches that are big organizations, um, societies, if you will, that have lost their connection from God and then begin to misuse the authority that God gave them. So you see the pattern. 
So it's a big one. So again, I want to set all this up because I want to talk about what God's intention was. How we get it wrong is helpful, right? That's missing the mark. That's sin. But the most important thing is not the fact that we missed the mark. Okay, that's a given, right? We've, we've established that. It's what happens next that's so powerful. So Jesus comes, and he restores the relationship. And so we talk about missing the mark. And so if we're not careful, if we keep, if we keep trying to have a relationship with God without, without the relationship with God, right? It turns into rules and regulations. And what happens is we try to obey God so that he gives us the identity of sons. But the way the Bible teaches is it's completely the opposite. God gives us an identity as sons, and from sonship, we obey and we rule. See how that works? And so we're going to talk about that as we go forward. But I'm going to jump into Genesis 15. Uh, won't keep, keep us long in here. It doesn't take long to go through this, but it's, it's important. Genesis 15, verse 1. This is Abraham, and a picture of the covenant, right? After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. He wasn't Abraham yet, in a vision. Do not be af- afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and your very great reward. Hold on to that. I'm your shield and your great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? In other words, you promised me kids, as many as the, sun, the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea, right? Remember that story? This is after that, and he's talking, he's like, God, what can you give me? Because it looks like it's not happening, right? You ever been there? God, you promised, and I'm not seeing it. So keep that in mind. Verse 4, we jumped one, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir. That's good news, right? But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. In other words, I'm going to fulfill the promise. He goes on, he says, he took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Big promise. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What is that? Again, we've talked about this so many different ways. But it's helpful to remember that because he believed God, he said, I believe that you are who you say you are. Right? That's, that's ultimately what belief is. It's not just a, a mindset about it. And we're going to get into this. You see it with Abram. It, it's not just a, a, a mental assent that something is true. It's living your life because it's true. So relationship comes first, right? That sense of, okay, God, you are who you say you are, and I believe you, so I'm going to begin to enter into a relationship with him. So Abram believed the Lord. He credited it to him as righteousness. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, again with the word sovereign, right? He knows who he is. How can I know that I will gain possession of it? Well, my first thought was, well, he said it, didn't he? And you said you believed him, right? But isn't it interesting? This is part of the, if you've ever been in the Middle East, this is part of the banter, right? You, if, you, if you go in and try to buy something at, at, at a market and, and you don't know how to banter, they get mad. They literally, because it's part of the culture. It's like, no, no, whatever you offered me, I'm not taking that. And whatever you, the guy said it was going to cost, it's way less than that. And wherever that in, in, ends at the middle is, you know, they, that, there's a sense of skill. And that's like, I, I got him closer to what I wanted than what he wanted. So it's, it's some, just part of their culture. So Ab- Abram does this with God. Now, with me, I'm not sure I would go there. You know, it's like this trying to, have this kind of conversation with a king, someone of, of, in authority, only this is the king of the universe, universe, but he goes there. He said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer. Now that means nothing to you, right? You might not even know what a heifer is. <laughs> but when God said, bring me a heifer, Abram knew exactly what that meant. It was the beginning of a covenant. And that's what, in that day, we're going to talk about this just briefly. In that day, a covenant meant everything. We're going to talk about some of the ways that covenant work without getting super 
into the details. He said, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and he arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pit with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. So what happened? So the Bible says he cut these animals in half. So imagine you're going to cut a a cow, basically, in half. From nose to tail, you, cut it, you have to cut it in half. So he cut, again, let me read it. He cut a, a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, right? So just imagine that real quick. He had to cut them in half from nose to tail, split them open, and he laid them open like this. And, and basically, there's like a, 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 um, a ditch through the middle where all the blood gathered, right? And there's, there's purpose for that. So he does this, he, and the Bible... I didn't get into it, but the Bible says eventually he got tired and he fell into a deep sleep. And that's when the Lord appeared to him, okay? So he's, he's exhausted from, from by himself slaughtering these animals, right? Getting it all done. And then he, he walks through, because he knows what this means. The covenant was you split these animals in half and you walk through and you meet the person on the other side and they walk through and that's an agreement and a covenant that says that if I don't, if I don't fulfill what I have said I would do, then what happened to these animals will happen to me. Big symbolism of death, new life. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on here. But the important thing to remember is Abram walks through the, into the covenant, tries to walk through the covenant, and God doesn't meet him there yet. <laughs> right? And so a couple of things about the covenant. One is the covenant was always from a greater to a lesser in that time. In other words, you wouldn't make a covenant with someone unless there was a benefit. There's some expectations in this, right? So you make a covenant with this person. You say, okay, I'm going to give myself to this person, and everything that is theirs, I get. So how many of you guys know that's good news for the person who doesn't have a lot, not as much good news for the person who, who has it all, right? So why is he entering into the covenant? But in that day, they would do that even if there's still a benefit in it. So Abram knows this. So he, he talked about in verse 8, how, how can I know? So God makes this covenant with Abram. And basically he's saying that everything that you've said, God's saying everything that I've said, now I'm going to make a covenant with you, which means I'm going to do it. I'm promising you. I'm, I'm taking an oath and I'm making a covenant. I'm promising you. Hebrews talks about it. I won't get into it. God says, bring me a heifer. So he does. He, go, he walks through the pieces himself. He goes into this deep sleep. And then this thing, these two things appear. One is a fire pot. And a fire pot was just, just, the short version is, it's where you kept the embers from the last flame. Because you don't have lighters back then. So when you're traveling and you need to start a new fire, that's what you use, the, the embers from the fire pit. And so part of what God was saying is, in the fire pit, I am your source. Right? You can't make your own fire. There's a beautiful word over us as a church several years ago that said, you will not have to create your own fire. You, you, you don't have to do that. I'll do that for you. I will be your source is what God was saying in that word to us. So he was the source. And then the second thing was a torch, the presence of God. The fire, the, both of them fire, but one of them is a torch fully in flame, right? So the source and the sustaining of it is, is a picture of both of those. It goes on, represents the, the, the presence of God. I talked about the greater Blessing the lesser. So here, again, is the challenge. What was in it for God? Right? That's the picture. So I, I promise you, when Abraham sat down at some point in the future, I promise you he sat down and he thought, you know, this is a really good deal that, that God's saying everything that he's promised me, everything that is his, is now mine. 
What does he want from me? What does he want? What's this about? So back then, covenants were about benefits, right? Expectations, what can, what can be gained from it. And that's still true, even in our relationship with God. There's a lot of symbolism going on here that if you read into it, and I encourage you, go read this and just kind of sit on some of this stuff. Maybe look at some com- uh, commentaries if you're not sure what's happening. Get some context around it. Because what begins to happen is it begins to churn inside you what God is saying, right? And so one aspect of this is the symbolism of death. And so there's, if you think of it this way, there's like this... this this canal of blood, right, which was a picture of the birth canal. Like you, you come in, the Bible talks about being born of blood and water, right, or, um, and, and being born of the Spirit. Jesus talks about that. So there's this picture, this symbolism of death to life. So you, in a covenant, you would die to yourself, your independence, right, and in this covenant, you would come alive in the togetherness of the person you were in covenant with. You were no longer alone. Isn't that what a picture of marriage is? Our covenant of marriage as a Christian marriage. I become one with you. Yeah, but I'm two people. I know, but you're one. There's something, there's something in about the intimacy of it. We don't talk about this stuff nowadays because we, we don't see the reason for it because there's so, so much humanism in our culture. But when you consummate the relationship, it was a place of in, intimacy that was built on commitment first, right? And, and what we're... What, what we should be recognizing is you can't have intimacy without the commitment. You're robbing something from someone. If you have, people ask the question sometimes, like, why you guys as Christians are so outdated when the dating thing is, why? who cares if, you're, if we're sleeping together? I mean, what does it really mean anyway? I'm like, it's a good question. What does it mean? Because <laughs> if you're saying, hey, I, you know, I love you and I want to be with you, but you don't make a commitment. See, part of the marriage ceremony, it's a moment in time where, think about this. You know, five minutes before, if you have sex, that's, that's not good. That's not helpful, right? Five minutes after, if you have sex, it's totally sanctioned. God's like, yeah, I'm totally pleased with that. No big deal. What was it about that, ha- that ceremony that made a difference? Was it just a bunch of words? No. It was symbolism, Right? But it meant something. And the, the meaning for it, again, we know this, is I am committing to you all that I am. I have a role to play. You have a role to play. I am committing everything I am to you. I'm no longer going to be single. That means I'm going to have to learn how to live with you in this house. <laughs> right? Anybody who's been married knows what I'm talking about. Right? Compromise some challenges and you have to work some stuff out. One of my favorite comedians talks about, he said, I, I realized I was married when I got angry at my wife. And I stormed out and slammed the door. And I, he said, I stood in the yard for about five minutes and realized I have to go back in. <laughs> that's the difference, right? And because you've made this commitment, that's this picture, right? This picture of, of I've given away my own life, my identity, singly. And I'm coming together with this person. But the beautiful part of it is everything that's theirs is mine now and everything that's mine is theirs. We share something. In essence, what's happening is we're becoming one. So it's also, again, it represents this picture like of a birth canal. So this great, the greater person, think about Abram just sitting down at the fire afterwards and thinking about this. He goes, I get why I did it, but why would the greater come through? I mean, think about some of the things that might have went through his head. He's, he's coming through and he's, God is identifying himself with someone who's limited. He's unlimited and he's identifying with someone who's limited. He's coming through this, this corridor, this this birth canal, if you will, and he's laying his life down to become like Abraham. That beginning to sound like something? How could the God of the universe give up his own life for the sake of Abram? How could God be so committed to him 
that he says he's, pre- he's prepared to die for me, which is part of the covenant. I will give my life away to protect you and your interests. How could the God of the universe somehow be born into my identity and become one with me? How could the one who flung the galaxies into space come through the birth canal? Anybody see where I'm going with this? <laughs> we, just, we just celebrated Christmas. It's such a beautiful picture of this. The very beginning, God committed to going through the birth canal, weak, vulnerable, and in our place as one of us. And this is the picture of what Jesus did. I find this amazing. We sing that song about, I'm a, I stand amazed. And I never, for whatever reason, I can't get past this, that God chose to limit himself and come to the earth as a vulnerable baby born in a manger. Why? Because he's identifying with us. Right? He's becoming one of us. Why is that so important? Well, for him, he loves us. This is why he's done this. This is why he's wanting to be in relationship with us. Is because it's why he made us. God was not lonely. Hear this. The Bible says that God loved the Son. I mean, the Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Son. The Father. They were in perfect harmony. They were in perfect community. I've talked about this. I'm going to talk about it in the future. There was no loneliness. But the Bible says, let, let us make man in our image. And the reason he made him in his image, so that he could love him. The reason God made you is so that he could love you. And then the reason he cuts a covenant, and he came into covenant with us, through ultimately through Jesus. Remember I said, everything else was a picture. Finally he said, that the last thing he's going to say, everything he's going to say, he's saying it through his son. And what was that? It was a picture of God saying, I will become like you. I will limit myself from heaven. I will become vulnerable, become weak. I will experience every bit of temptation that you had and more because he never gave in. We all have given in. But Jesus experienced the ultimate in temptation in that he never gave in once. So when you are tempted, When you're tempted by sin, by brokenness, by the hurt, whatever it's caused you to feel what you're feeling, and you have a a tendency, this desire to go do something that you know is wrong, the Bible talks about remembering that that Jesus was tempted just like you and I, but without sin. So he knows what you're going through, the hurt, the pain, the heartache. On the cross, he, you see this picture of God in relationship with his Father, with, his, with the believers, his disciples, and with the world. You see it, a picture on the cross. You see him cry out to the Father. You see him speak to John and say, take care of my mom. He knew what that was going to ha- the sword that was piercing her heart, he knew what she was going to experience. He knew she needed to be in community, and she, he knew she needed someone like John to be with her when this happened because it was going to be overwhelming if it weren't. And so he cared about his mom. He, he was broken. He experienced suffering, heartache, and pain. He experienced loss. He experienced rejection like nobody ever has in all of history or ever will. He experienced all of that. He reached out, you know, Father and the disciples. That triangle we talk about, you know, up toward the Father and the Spirit of God moving in your life, in toward the believers and the disciples, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and then out towards the world. You see it all pictured on the cross, and the last thing he does is he cries out. He, he speaks to the, to, the, um, to the sinners on either side. One of them rejects him wholly, outright, and the other one gives himself, recognizes what's happened, and finds salvation, and finds hope and connection with God at the last minute. If that's not the mercy and the grace of God, I don't know what, what is. 
And so what I want to leave you with this morning is, he did that for a reason. What does God get out of it? I promise you, Abram looked at that and said, what, why? And he kept coming back to, he loves me. No, that can't be it. (laughs) So find another reason, right? No, 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 no. He loves me. Yeah, but, no, but, he loves me. He does. He loves me so much that he's willing to be like me. He's willing to limit himself and suffer so that he could be in relationship with me, so that you and I could feel the love that he has for us and that we could in turn give the love back to him because what does the Bible say? We love him, why? Because he first loved us. See, the greater walked through the covenant on our behalf. The greater always initiated the covenant because he had the most to lose in that time. But in this sense, in the greater, he not only had the most to lose, of course, but he had the, the most to gain in the sense of his great love for us would be recognized, celebrated, and reciprocated. And so from that, we have this relationship. And this is what's beautiful about this picture of Abram. He just could talk to God about anything. Why? Because the sin was no longer the issue. Remember he said, I, I believed God. I believed in who he says and who he was, that he was who he said he was. And because of that, I have a relationship with him now, and and God said, I count that as righteousness. So everything that was wrong, he pushed out of the way so he could be in relationship with with Abram. And isn't that what Jesus did with you and I? Everything that was in the way is no longer in the way. It's all past tense. It's been done. It is finished. So anything that you think is in the way between you and God is made up in your own mind. It's a lie from the enemy. It's some kind of deception to, to, to get you to disconnect from the source. And typically how that works in religion is guilt and shame and condemnation. So if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. So what are the implications of that? And that's what we want to explore in this series that we're doing. What does it look like when you really get that? Now everything's out of the way and you can ask God anything. You can talk to him about your, your brokenness, your sin. Why, you know, you sin, this is our mindset, we sin and we think, oh, I've sinned now. Because I've sinned, God has turned his face on me. Who told you that? Who told you that? Because God never said that. He's, it's not in the Bible. He never said it. Some religious person told you that. Right? But God never said that. If that's the case, then what can I do? I can come before him and go, God, you see this pattern, this old pattern from my life before, it seems to still be here. I can now come have a conversation with him knowing that the motivating factor in his life is not to crush me, right? He could have done that at any point. He didn't. It's to love me and to release me and to free me from everything that's in the way of all of the inheritance belongs to me through that covenant. And then from that, I obey. From that place of inheritance. Now I have purpose. I have definition. It's defined by the source. It's defined by my relationship with God. It's not... That, that church is just a thing I do. It's a part of my life. No, no, no. Jesus said it's all or nothing. You want to you gain your life, give it away. You want to receive everything, throw it, throw it all away. It's what we think in our head. We're throwing it all away, but we're not. We're, we're giving away something so small and so limited and gaining everything, that, but it's only connected in him. And so as we leave this morning, I just want to remind you, everything you have, every good thing, the Bible says, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights everything. He is not withholding one good thing from you. Then why aren't we seeing some of the good things? 
And that's a really good question. We're going to talk about that as we go into this series. Because the next part is, from this place of covenant and relationship, now comes the ability to represent him in power. That's what the kingdom is about. And so whatever has been given to you has not just been given to you for selfish reasons, but it's been given to you as an inherent inheritance, not just to bless you, but to bless people through you and because of you. Remember, that's what he told Abraham. I'm going to bless the nations through you. I'm going to bless you because of it. Can't get away from that. It's kind of a happy side effect, right? But the picture of it is, I have a purpose for your life, Abram, and I'm going to use you to, to rescue and redeem and be a part of the mission that I've called you to, and that's what the kingdom